God, right now, uh, we come to you, and we just recognize our, our need for you. We ask you, Father, that you would just speak to us, reformat, God, our lives, pray, God, any areas of our lives that are just lacking any sense of direction or meaning or purpose. God, we ask you that you would just uh, connect us to this ancient historic wisdom that comes from your word. And God, we want to just pause right now and just reflect upon who you are, what you've called us to be, and receive, Lord, the invitation to follow you into this life. So right now, we just give you our time, our attention, and we ask that you would uh, do with it what you choose. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do right now is I'm going to, like I said, this is sort of an intro, but there's one very specific topic that I really want to focus on. I'll tell you why this is going to be so central to the next several weeks, again, which today is just more of like a trailer or an intro to it. And it's really this idea of what we would call the good life, the good life. And why this is important to the writing of Peter, um, again, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings and following through as we've been looking at this book, uh, Peter's writing to a community of Christians that are basically scattered throughout the ancient Roman world, and they're trying to follow Jesus as faithfully as they can. But the big question that keeps coming back to their mind is how do we do that within our own specialized roles that we have to play within culture and community at large? So whether you're not a husband or you're a wife, or you're a business owner, or you're somebody that works for somebody else. Um, these are questions that they're asking. How am I supposed to do this in a way that reflects the nature and the character of God in a good manner, in a good way? So, for example, let's say you are working for a boss that's horribly abusive. How do I do that faithfully? Do I, do I, do I kill my boss? <laughs> uh, Peter's like, no, don't kill your boss. Do good do good? What if I'm in an abusive marriage? What if I'm in a marriage that's not going well? Again, within our own culture today, these are things that we face, and they're important questions. And the bigger question that we should be asking that's behind all of these other questions is how do I model faithfulness to Jesus rightly in spite of the circumstances that I might find myself in? Again, these are nuanced, they're intricate, and in some cases extremely complex, but Peter's doing his best to equip followers of Jesus to answer these questions rightly. So that's what we've been really trying to process and think about. Um, but now Peter shifts gears a little bit and begins to focus upon this topic of the good life. So I kind of get this from the little section. Um, we'll read it. I'll, I'll point out to you when we read through it. But what I want to do right now is I want to read kind of a little bit of a lengthy passage of Scripture. So, um, again, I realize we are all shaped by the culture at large around us, which, which basically means that, for the most part, we have... Very short attention spans, especially when it comes to things like public reading. And honestly, I think that's, that's unfortunate because I think by our short, shortened attention span, um, it, it creates kind of a deficiency for us to be able to really learn and grow. Again, we like headlines. We like things that are under 140 characters. And, uh, but, but I want to, I want to throw something out there for each one of us to just chew on, to consider, to maybe even expand our horizons a little bit. Um, and I want to just read a larger portion of scripture. We're going to pick it up at verse eight of chapter three, first Peter. I'm going to read down to verse 18. So it's lengthy. Um, I'm going to look at it, and I have three different slides that you can follow along if you don't have a Bible. Um, but I want to read this. Uh, 1 
Timothy chapter 4, Paul the writer, there he tells this guy, Timothy, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And he goes on to say, as well as preaching and teaching. But the important thing is, back in the day, long before we had, you know, things like the internet and whatnot, um, the way that people got content, the, the way they learned, the way they grew, was through dialogue with people, obviously, in the open market of ideas and whatnot. Um, mom and dad would teach you something. Um, or they would have letters that they would read. But the problem with that is most people were illiterate back in the ancient Roman world. Most people. So typically what they would do is they would you know, gather around, especially within an ancient church context. You would have, for the most part, somebody that would be able to be literate. They would read. And they would take this body of text or writing or letter that Paul or Peter, whoever it is, would, would have written. And then they would sit down. They would gather around, maybe fire, you know, someone would be making falafel in the background or Turkish coffee, whatever the case is. And then here they are gathered around. Somebody's going to give public reading. And then everybody else just listens to it. So it wasn't like two verses and they're done. They would read the entire letter from, from start to finish. I mean, imagine that, doing that even with like the book of Revelation. That's, that's a practice I've been doing actually every year for the past several years. It's just during December, I'll read the entire book of Revelation in one setting. It's like 21 chapters. It's lengthy. It's about an hour and a half long. But the reward is insane. Like, if you want to treat yourself to something really, really rich, do that. Just find a good Bible app and just listen to it. Listen to it. The public uh, hearing, uh, reading is really rich. That's what I'm going to do for you right now. So I'm going to read this lengthy passage of scripture, and then I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to make some comments with regard to it, and then uh, we'll end with just a couple, uh, kind of like a, a, a dual form invitation for us as we move on into these next eight weeks. So First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, here we go. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with one another. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back, dot, 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 with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scripture says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. So there you go. There's, that's where I derive the idea from this from is the idea of uh, live a good life. Some of your other translations rather than say enjoy life, some of your translations just say good life. And this is where we kind of get the, the, the idea or the theme that Peter is leading us into. So if you want to enjoy the good life, see many happy days. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. For the eyes of the Lord watch those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. By the way, all of that was just a quotation of an ancient historic wisdom called the Psalms. Then he goes on to say, Now... Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? I can think of a lot of people. I <laughs> uh, think of a lot of people that even though you set out in your heart, you wake up in the morning and I want to do good. It doesn't eliminate you from the possibility of enemies. It doesn't eliminate you from the possibility of critique or criticism or anger or hatred or mob violence against whatever it is your posture is. But he goes on to say, now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will 
reward you. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about the hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and a respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life that you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all. He never sinned. And he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. Good job, guys. Congratulations. You just endured a lengthy passage of scripture reading. So I really want to focus on this idea of a good life, I think because this is exactly what Peter is trying to emphasize. And I want to think about this in the context of our culture, but even within the ancient culture. Um, But then try to, like I said, set a course, chart a course for us as we move on into this, um, again, after Advent, beginning to look at this larger uh, topic and subject matter of the good life. Um, this idea of the good life is, is not new, it's, and it's not even exclusive to the Bible. In fact, if you follow kind of like uh, the ancient philosophers, uh, people like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, uh, this is a large portion of what they spent their time and energy thinking about and writing about and teaching on and instructing others to to consider. Um, This is really, really important to them. And in a lot of ways, this is kind of... uh, the way that they try to slow down, to analyze, to consider, to think about life, uh, there's a lot of important elements to this, which I'm not going to necessarily unpack right now just due to space of time. But it's, it's definitely a worthy uh, form of exploration if you're looking for some form of good information to consider, to think about, at least um, extra biblical type stuff. This is, this is really fascinating uh, to study the writings of these three masterminds. But one of the things that each one of them, they all agreed that in order to live a happy life or a happenstantially good, that's what the word happy means, happenstance, something that is a directly a result of something fortunate happening to you, um, they described that one actually needs to actually be virtuous. So they emphasize a lot virtue, the concept of virtue. What does it mean to actually live a virtuous life? So they spent a lot of time unpacking this, considering this, thinking about this. And so um, the way they began to do this is that they emphasized that there are at least uh, five or four to five different areas that were really essential. Um, one was justice, courage, friendship, love, and self-knowledge. These were elements that they would say that as you focus on these areas and as you keep them within a proper balance, what you'll find is you will begin to live a good life. Your life will be one that's worth living. And I think this is important because, for example, Plato actually had written an account in one of his speeches about Socrates. Uh, If you remember, he was on trial at one point for corrupting the youth of his age, uh, the things that he was teaching. And while he was being examined, he was famously uh, said to have said this phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living. And his big idea that he was trying to convey is the importance of actually spending time thinking about the life that you are actually living. Have you thought about that? 
If you just actually step back from all of the distractions. And if I had to guess that because for the most part we are, we are either victims of or uh, consequences of our culture at large around us. And that's not for the better. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. That's not virtuous. Um, I think for the most part, we are so riddled with distraction. There's so much that's available for us to, uh, to bring into our lives to just wash away any form of actually long, deep pondering or thinking to even go this route that even the ancients had invited us to consider to do. In Socrates, that's why I said it was so important, this idea of the unexamined life is not worth living. His whole point was, like, take time to think about, to make sure uh, that you are investing in certain lifestyle activities or actions that will actually formulate a virtuous life, that will then lead to a, a good life, one that's worth living. Um, Solomon, uh, another ancient historic writer uh, spends a lot of time writing about this. In fact, if you want a really good book to just invest and read, it's the book of Ecclesiastes, where he spends an enormous amount of energy and wisdom really just considering, thinking about, like, what makes life worth living? What creates a life that's of, of consequence and of worth that's ultimately, when, when I pass away, and again, that's part of, the, part of the problem is that I think we live in a culture that's, that's infatuated with youthfulness, Right? We want to live young. We want to look young. We want to act long, young. We want to feel young. So the thought of actually dying is something that we just don't even want to think about. We try to run away from that thought as much as we can, as frequently as we can. And what Solomon is basically saying is that part of living an examined life is you have to think about these things. You have to think about what you are investing your energy towards. And he goes through this entire litany of, of experience and uh, memoir of like, here's what I've investigated and here's what I've invested my life in. He talks about, you know, having a lot of alcohol and drinking a lot and being that type of person that just parties a lot. He talks a lot about even having uh, incredibly uh, lengthy, many sexual escapades. He talks about the, 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 the reality that he had power, enormous amount of power and wealth and influence. So he literally was the influencer before influencers were even a thing. Like that was Solomon. So he describes having literally all of these things. And he summarizes the entirety of this book by saying, look, I've, I've had it all. I've literally have had it all. Education, right? He had like, like more degrees you can even imagine just in terms of life and study and resources and available, available uh, ideas and concepts and knowledge database given to him. Like he was extremely gifted on all these fronts. And yet at the end of his life, he's like, look, I've, I summarized that the, that the life that's really worth living, I'm kind of creating my own uh, way of defining the way he described it. But he says, it's to fear God. Like at the end of the day, the, a life that does not fear God, that does not live under the submission, under the authority of Yahweh, is one that ultimately is just wasted. It's, it amounts to nothing. It might amount to a whole lot of great experiences. and But at the end of the day, uh, the life that's really examined well and worth living is one that's going to correspond your life rightly to the creator God who loves you and gave himself for you. Um, I think a lot about even today in, in our modern world in which we live in the landscape that we live in, because um, it, it would not be correct to say that within our modern world that we don't have a, 
uh, I don't know, an, an ethos of how to live or how to live a good life, because we actually do. Um, moderns, people that live in America, people that live on the central coast of California, people that live in, you know, the United States, we have an idea that we've constructed, multiple ideas, and it's not always the same across the board and across people groups, but we have an idea of how we would describe what constitutes what makes up a good life. Now, again, one of the things I think that's really important to note is that the ancients, they recognized the importance of keeping all of these things in balance. So, for example, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, they would describe the importance of keeping justice, courage, friendship, love, self-knowledge, all these things within a proper balance. Because if you focus on one, say, for example, uh, uh, justice, and that's the main focal point that you focus on, and you don't balance that out with love, you can actually become a social justice warrior that's a jerk. It's extremely rude and arrogant and prideful, and it's just as bad and part of the same oppression as those that you are out to attack and destroy and counteract their message. So they talk about the importance of balancing these things. But our modern world in which we live in today has kind of a similar idea. In fact, I was thinking about this um, Pablo Escobar, if you're familiar with him. He's the infamous um, Colombian drug lord, right? So um, I would say someone like Pablo Escobar uh, definitely lived well. (laughs) He lived well, all right? If you look at his life, he was one of the wealthiest criminals throughout the entirety of all history. He had private jets, race cars, huge mansions. I think I was even told, watching a documentary that he's got hippos. That's kind of a big problem right now down in Colombia, hippos. Did you know that? Anyways, um, he imported them from Africa, and they they populated the the rivers and streams and all that. That's not good. So anyways, the point of the matter is, this guy lived well, but did he have and engage in a good life? Probably not. He killed a lot of people, right? He was notorious. He was ruthless. And, but the bottom line is this, is we want to really think about what does it mean to really live a good life? I was recently reading an article this past week that just came out of Psychology uh, Post, and the title was just really fascinating. It kind of draw, drew me in, and I read the entire article. It was really fascinating, but I want to do a little bit more research into this. But the article basically stated this, that new research indicates hatred toward collective entities inspires Ready for this? Meaning in life. I'm going to break that down just so that you can understand. It was kind of a lengthy title. Listen to what it says. A new research indicates hatred toward collective entities inspires meaning of life. So let me, again, break this down, reverse engineer it. Meaning in life, for some, comes from or is derived from developing a corporate hatred against some entity, some group that we are going to label evil. So you get enough of these people around that are like, we hate the patriarchy. We hate the whatever. We hate you fill in the blank. You get enough of those people that share the same level or volume or breadth of hatred. There's a sense psychologists are discovering actually leads to a sense of meaning in life. In fact, this is, this is fascinating as I was thinking through this. I wonder if this actually taps into kind of the ancient philosophical statements and ideas of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the idea of virtue, for example, or justice, one of the virtues being justice. Maybe, because I, I think if you were to look at why do people have this collective hatred What's fueling that? I think probably what's fueling that is a deep sense of justice. There's a deep sense of wanting to put the world right, but to do so in a way 
that focuses, hyper-focuses, if you would, on this. So in other words, to do that well, you've got to find an enemy that's causing all the injustice, and we've got to focus energy and hatred despite upon that enemy, and we get enough of those people around, kind of create a critical mass of people that hate the same person, it fuels this sense of like, we are warriors for good. But in reality, warriors for good using what? Instruments. Instruments of hatred. And this is why I think it's really important to just, again, step back. What's the gospel inviting us into? How do we live as followers of Jesus in a world that in so many ways is confused, that in so many ways has lost its bearings? And how do we recalibrate ourselves around the purpose and the person of Jesus? As I was thinking about this, there's a handful of ideas, I think, that come into our cultural uh, milieu in which we find ourselves that kind of bring a sense of goodness in terms of life. I think justice is definitely one of those things. But again, we've already kind of pointed out people that live with a deep, deep sense of like, we're going to live to bring justice in this world, which I would add, that's a really good virtue. It's a good trait. It's something I think if you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to have. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you have no deep sense of justice, there's a problem. There's a problem. Something's not right. You've got to recalibrate that. Again, but you can also be someone that is deeply focused on justice that has nothing to do with the gospel or the goodness of Jesus and look nothing like Jesus. And this is where, again, you could have one but not have the other. And have, if you have the one, the gospel, you will ultimately end up having the other. But here's the point I would make is that we have to be careful about that balance element that, like I described I think another one that's really common and popular in our world today is just the idea of consumerism. In other words, you have, if you have all these goods in the world, will that provide a sense of meaning and purpose in life? And, you know, again, for some, it's like the more you have, the more you have access to, the more that's available to you. Really, at the end of the day, we, we know by case study after case study after case study after, you know, celebrity addiction and celebrity suicide after celebrity addiction and celebrity suicide, we realize that, wow, they had everything. Right, exactly. They had everything, but that everything did not give them a deep sense of meaning and purpose in life. In other words, they may have had a life that had lots of stuff, but they did not have a good life. A life that gave them a deep sense of purpose and meaning and ultimately led to a place of brokenness and deep chaos. So consumerism, greed... That ultimately doesn't lead to a deep sense of goodness in life. Uh, I think of another one. It's just self-expressiveness. Again, there's a lot of uh, emphasis upon our culture today. And a lot of it, I think, comes within the territory of moving away from a modern mindset or modern world set, uh, worldview that basically would describe you are who your mom and dad created you to be, or you are what the collective tribe tells you that you should be, to a deep sense of uh, hyper-individualism. And I think within this world of hyper-individualism, you need to kind of nuance that by way of your own personalized self-expressiveness. But again, at the end of the day, we, we know this by fact, that having endless possibilities to choose from doesn't make you happy. It just leads to anxiety. Again, it's just like I've said this before, like there's, there's actual incredible freedom and limits. When you put out a post on social media, you're like, I don't know what Netflix movie to watch next because there's like a trillion of them. I'm freaking out. I don't know what to watch. And then you have your good friends. They're like, here, here's 10 of them to choose from. You're like, ah, life, freedom. 
I got 10 to select now, as opposed to 10 trillion. Like, the point that I would make is this, is that the idea that culture says good life is found by you choosing your own adventure, choosing your own course, you figuring out who you are. There's a lot of pressure on that. And again, at the end of the day, I, I don't have time to really even go into this even further right now, but the point that I would make is, is I've, I've made, tried to make this point before in the past. We are not as autonomous as we like to think we are. We are shaped by all sorts of forms and fashions, fashionable ideas around us and trends and social media and algorithms and, you know, pop-up ads that are like knowing your thoughts or like, you know, you're like, where in the world did that, you know, advertisement for losing 15 pounds of belly fat come from? You're like, that's exactly what I needed. How did they know that? I'm going to click that. Now, the next thing you know, you're on this rabbit trail. It's just like for the next 15 minutes of your life, it take you down a rabbit trail of YouTube videos and another speaker. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're just like, my entire day is gone. How does this happen? I thought I was in control of it. Nope, you're not as in control of your life as you thought. That can't be a path to the good life either. And then the last one that I just think about is just the idea of sexual freedom. We live in a world that really came through a cultural revolution in the 60s. And by the way, it won. Sexual revolution. Uh, that the, the very idea or name sexual revolution was framed by a guy named Wilhelm Reich. He was a psychologist that actually wrote the book literally called The Sexual Revolution. And it happened. It happened in, in America um, before most of you guys were even, a, were even born. But this idea of sexual freedom, sexual liberation, actually became expressed and lived into and throughout the 70s and whatnot. And we're still really living in, in the reality of that uh, in so many ways. But the point that I would make is, is that that. Freedom actually has led to so much brokenness. I was uh, reading a, or listening to a podcast this past week on the life of Jim Jones. And I'm so fascinated by the guy. And I'm so excited to hear that. I think it was Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And one of these guys, I think he just took on the lead role. is going to be playing Jim Jones. If you don't know who Jim Jones is, you got to like, it's fascinating. Any, anyway, historical figure. But the point I would make is this. Back on track, Brian. Uh, the point that I would make is this. Is that he was talking about within the context of this podcast of the sexual uh, movement that took place throughout the 60s and the 70s, and he was describing all these sexual activities that would ultimately end up happening, and and, and he, he describes this moment, I'm going to get too into it, but the, the graphic point that he makes is that the losers in a sexual freedom movement were actually women. They would walk away from these moments of being raped or having been sexually exploited. And he's like, they've been sold, we've been sold a, a pipe dream. That this is the path to the good life, sexual liberation, sexual freedom. His whole point is that actually it's not. This guy's not a Christian. But his whole point is like th- there are things that we've been sold that this is the path to the good life. And ultimately in the end, it ends up bringing about even more destruction, brokenness, shame, complex guilt that we've never even dreamed of before. New layers of depravity and brokenness like we've never even imagined. And all of this gets contrasted, I believe, with just the image that we see within the Bible. And the picture that I think Peter is trying to paint for us is that there is indeed in this world a path to the good life, a life that actually is good, that's truly worth living, that actually not only leads to my own personal self-expression and flourishing, but also is able to distinguish me from the rest of the culture by way of me being able to live in all the gifts that God's given me, but also plants me squarely not 
as someone that's isolated from the culture at large, but as actually living within the community and being able to use my gifts and abilities within the context of, of a family, meaning I have a place that I can call home, meaning I'm not lost, meaning I'm not in exile, meaning I'm not an orphan. I'm not out there trying to have to like live for my own self. I'm actually able to live and use my energies to live for others and find a deep sense of meaning within that. So I want to finish with some three thoughts and just an invitation. I'll be done. So I think there's at least three keys that he's going to describe. I kind of read through them, but I'm going to give them to you all in an alliterated fashion in terms of what they involve is attitude. We saw this a little bit last week, and again, we will get into this at the beginning of the year, where he talks about the idea of attitude. This involves how we actually respond or actually think in terms of um, circumstances in our life, attitude. Uh, secondly, it involves our actions. What do we do? How do we take the information and the knowledge and attitude that we have that's been reformed by Jesus and then begin to live into that. What does that look like? And again, that's the verses uh, 9 through 12. And then lastly, what I want to end on is just this idea of authority. And uh, because this is kind of further soft in the future, I just want to say a couple final words on this and then I'll be done. But the last thing he talks about this idea of authority. And I, I derive this from the text, from the idea that he actually goes back and, like I said earlier, he quotes from the psalm. Which means that the way that, and again, this is hundreds of years later. He's basically borrowing from information that's hundreds of years prior to his own life. And he's saying, ah, here's where I find my life. It's anchored in this story. So we, we, part of the sexual revolution that took place in the 60s, again, long before many of you guys were even born, was also part of a deconstruction of all things tradition and historical. The, the idea of basically saying, I don't want anything to do with my mom and dad's religion. I don't want anything to do with my mom and dad's life. I don't want anything to do with grandma's, you know, folk stories. I want, I want to be my, I want to be a modern person living in the world that I craft. Again, like I said earlier, the, the problem with that is, is that we may think we're actually crafting and creating our own story. But what ends up happening is that the stories that we craft and create are actually formed and formulated <laughs> by people with very powerful, uh, in, in many ways, um, financial interests in your life. And they will gladly feed you a narrative to live according, off, live according to, to shape your life, to shape the way that you think. But what the gospel invites us into is to recraft our lives around the narrative of the Bible. Realizing, again, that, that, that tethers us, connects us, which is the opposite of free fall. It connects us to this ancient historic story of God who loves humanity. Of a God that actually created us and endowed upon us with freedoms and beauty and goodness and abilities. And yet we have a part to play in this of cooperating with him and saying yes to the Lord and following him into his purposes and kingdom building desires in this world. Uh, or we can say no to that and say, I want to do what I want to do. I'm not interested in what you have to say. And then that's a path that leads to, at some point, an opening of a Pandora's box. And again, just the, the re reprise of the story of Adam and Eve all over again, unleashing its own forms of chaos upon our world. But the story of Scripture is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he invites us to follow him, to be transformed by his love, his love, his acceptance. 
everything in our world is, is, is wired in such a way where you have to earn another person's approval and respect and love. Do you realize how exhausting that is? Do you realize what happens to your soul when you keep giving yourself over and over and over again to the point where you got nothing left to give? Do you realize how dehumanizing that is? But the gospel actually recreates an entirely different world that says God so loved the world. He steps into this world, becomes a human being just like you and I, takes upon himself the same types of brokenness and betrayal and hardship and pain and difficulty that we all go through, meaning he knows exactly what we have and are going through. And says, I'm inviting you into a new way of doing humanity. And it involves a reformatting of your attitude and of your actions and reprioritization of the authority structures that you have in your life. So the last thing I want to just end on this is this thought of a life that's examined is one that ultimately my encouragement to you would be to just consider what authority are you living under? Is there an authority that you can point to and say, this is the authority I live under? Again, we, it's, it's popular in today's world to challenge all forms of authority, all institutional authority as being somehow subject to criticism, which again, human institutional authority is broken and at some point its flaws will become visible. But my question is to you as a follower of Jesus, if that's what you claim, who is the authority to whom you subject and submit yourselves to? If you can't answer that clearly, and again, there's no judgment or guilt, um, what I'm just, I'm, I'm, asking you to consider to think about then at some point there will be an alternative authority figure that will fill in the default zone of your life so let me give you an example over 2020 i think you know we've all been tempted to just sit down and binge something really long you know that has multiple seasons in it on you know netflix or hulu or whatever it is but the point that i want to make is that by indoctrinating yourself to that discipleship platform. That's what I want you to think it is. It is a discipleship pathway that you are saying, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to imbibe hundreds of hours of theology from this source. But the thing I want you to think about is that theology is shaping you. It's shaping how you think about God. It's shaping your anthropology, how you think about yourself as well as other human beings. And it will take you someplace. It may promise you the good life. But unless it's deeply anchored in the anthropology of the Bible and of the theology of Scripture, then at some point it will fail and it will break. Which brings me back to this question of authority. By subjecting ourselves to anything other than God is inviting other authority figures into our lives to shape us. Lastly, is I want to invite you, by way of submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus, as we enter into the season of Christmas, to really think about what is Advent all about. I'm really excited about jumping in next week to begin to take a look at this greater, deeper subject matter of God stepping into this world. I, I'm just trusting and believing God to reformat, reshape our understanding to the story of Jesus being born in a manger what that means for you and I, and how does that 
begin to translate itself into our lives. Not just in terms of like creating a warm, fuzzy feeling in our heart. Like, oh, what a great story. It's just so full of sentimental value. No, no, no. That's great for you on a personal level. I'm talking about living out. What is it? How does that create in us a deep desire to connect with the good life? And I'll give you a quick little trailer and I'm done. In fact, Mikey, why don't you come on up as you listen to Song of Worship. But to the degree I think that we understand that God does not run from our pain and brokenness, but runs into it. That begins to show us a little bit about the heart that God wants to make in you and I. It's to become people. We don't run from other people's pain and hurt and shame and difficulty. We run into it. We don't abandon people. We don't cancel people out. We don't try to bring destruction and shame or guilt or pain or hurt into their lives. We try to become people that alleviate it and lift it up. We find areas where there are injustice and we say we're going to step into the gap and play those important roles that Jesus played in the life of all history. 